I get to talk about something near and dear to my heart, the subject of church planting, particularly innovative approaches to church planting to reach unchurched and de-churched millennials. Now, this is real exciting because there's lots of experiments, a lot of innovative approaches that are being considered, but it's also relevant because of the contemporary need in our context, and we're going to talk about both of those. But I wanted to frame our discussion with a short video clip, and uh, if you can show that to us, Sai. It's about a bonsai. Anybody know, anybody have a bonsai plant? Okay, have it with you, maybe carrying around your backpack? No, not here. Okay, but you have a bonsai. Um, does anybody know what they do differently to the bonsai seed so that it doesn't grow very tall? These plants are about 50 years old, and if you look at the rugged branches, the, the trunk, the knobby uh, branches that extend out, this thing, if it was planted outside, it should be 50 feet high. But the bonsai grows about knee high. Does anybody know what they do differently to the seeds so that the bonsai doesn't grow as high as it should? Any guess? No. Okay, actually, they don't do anything differently to the seed. What happens is the bonsai gets planted in this small little container and the roots grow and it gets root bound and therefore the roots limit how high this plant can go such that what should grow to 50 feet is now limited to just about two or three feet even though it's 50 years old and here's the question that I have is it possible that church planters have been planting churches in containers that are too small meaning this are we asking people to leave the normal flow of life of where they work and where they play and where they interact in the marketplace and go to these small little containers called church buildings once a week or twice a week, such that it becomes very unnormal. And is it possible that because of the size of the containers, we've limited the growth of what the gospel could do to transform our society? Now, it's particularly pertinent. Look at the trends in our society here which are not good. Uh, Kinnaman has added together the unchurched, the never-churched, the skeptics, and the non-religious to lump those together to call them the post-Christian crowd. Look at the generational trend such that today, the millennials, there's 48% in the U.S. that would be considered post-Christian. This is not a good trend. Now, we're not quite where Europe is at this point, but we're headed in that direction. I'm not being prophetic, but the secularization slide is moving in that direction, and is it possible, therefore, that we need to think of alternate approaches for church planting? So Bishop Graham Cray has said this, the long-established ways of doing church are working less and less. So the long-established ways that we have confined churches to these small containers are working less and less to engage our contemporary society. So what I'd like to do this morning in a short time is talk about entrepreneurial church planting. I'll define that by providing some biblical basis for that, some uh, theological understanding, as well as a few uh, pieces of history, some historical perspective, and then give a couple contemporary examples to show some signs of hope. But I'd like to start with three questions. And these are three questions that I hope you ask yourself often. These are the kind of questions that church planners ask or should be asking. 
And a good question really is better than a good answer because a good question can result in new discoveries. The first one is this. If large segments of the population, such as millennials, will not come to the existing church buildings, no matter how excellent the preaching, the building, or the programs are, then what approaches can be used to reach them? Now, this is kind of a painful question for pastors because they've been counting on the fact that they get the right preaching, the right facilities, and the right programs for kids and youth, etc., and that is just going to suck in millennials to this church. What if we assume that that's no longer working? And no matter what you do inside that building, they're not going to come into that container. So therefore, we have to ask some other questions. Where are these unchurched people? Already gathering in the marketplace, or what type of businesses would draw them because they see value to that gathering? And then third, how can entrepreneurs form communities of Christ followers in the marketplace through Christ-honoring business ventures? We're trying to think entrepreneurial, innovative, engaging larger venues, larger containers than we have in the past. So a, a quick definition, entrepreneurial church planting. His entrepreneurial approach is to form communities of Christ followers among unchurched people through businesses in the marketplace. Lots of key terms thrown in there. Uh, think about the uh, entrepreneurial type of thinking, innovative type of thinking, outside the box. Think of communities of Christ followers instead of some of the baggage attached to the word church. Think of stretching our ecclesial definitions a little bit wider. Think of the focus on unchurched not uh, sheep stealing, you know, people sh church shopping, but think about unchurched, dechurched populations. And then think about the role of business in the marketplace where business provides value such that people come to you. You don't have to knock on their door, so to speak, but they come to you because you provide value in that community. Okay. So Priscilla and Aquila provide an interesting example for us. Paul is on this missionary journey, and it almost seems like he makes a mistake. Because he's on this important job. He's a missionary. He's traveling. He's planting churches. He's preaching. And let's pick it up in uh, Acts chapter 18. It says, After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. There he met a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had ordered all the Jews to leave Rome. Paul went to see them, and because he was a tent maker as they were, he stayed and worked with them. Now, wait a second, I thought he had an important job to do. He was on a missional task. And he stops and takes a job. Like he's working at a job. It almost seems like maybe he lost his way. Maybe he got discouraged and gave up and decided, well, I'm just going to go back to work. Is that possible? Well, Dr. Long has described where the guilds in that day were very strong, and uh, leather workers, tent makers would come together to strengthen their guild. And I can picture Paul being strategic of networking with these people in this guild that nobody else had access to. But he did. Because he was a tent maker himself. And therefore, this job was a venue upon which he could engage in authentic relationships to share his faith. Hmm. Interesting. And then we find out later, when we read in Romans and Corinthians, as Paul writes to these churches, he says to uh, greet Priscilla and Aquila and the church that meets in their house. So what happened was a church was planted 
in Priscilla and Aquila's house. So in Dr. Keener's commentaries, you'll read that back in that day, houses often, uh, the living location was combined with the business location. So a business will be in the front, in the house in the back, business at the bottom floor, the house on the top floor. So therefore, we find a good example of Priscilla and Aquila forming this business which gathers a network of relationships that draw people to this business venue to create a church, entrepreneurial church planning. And I think that Paul was actually very strategic and intentional in doing that because he learned this almost by accident previously in Acts chapter 16. If we look at Acts chapter 16, verse 13 to 15, we find this. On the Sabbath, we went outside the city gate to the river where we expected to find a place of prayer. We sat down and began to speak to the women who had gathered there. One of those listening was a woman named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth from the city of Thyatira, who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. When she and the members of her household were baptized, she invited us to her house. If you consider us or consider me a believer in the Lord, she said, come and stay at my house. And she persuaded us. So Paul kind of stumbles into this relationship. Now it turns out this woman has a business. She's a businesswoman, which means that she's connected to a supply chain of people, bringing in fabric and material and threads, etc. And also connected to a distribution channel of all different uh, places that these goods would go to. And what turns out is a church is planted in her house, and we find indications of this in verse 40, when Paul and Silas are released from prison, They go visit her house where the believers are already gathered. So it's the beginning of a church plant in Lydia's house, which is also a business location. So Paul stumbled upon that and then later made it more intentional with Priscilla and Aquila. Now, while um, contemporary theologians are often a bit hesitant to talk about business and money, etc., Jesus didn't seem to have that kind of angst. He didn't seem to be that uncomfortable with it. If you look at the public appearances of Jesus, 92% he's engaged in the marketplace. And if you consider the parables of Jesus, such as Matthew 25, 87% of those are him engaged in these larger containers called the marketplace. And the apostles as well in the book of Acts. 98% of the divine interventions in the book of Acts are engaged in the marketplace, larger containers upon which the church can grow. So you get uh, Martin Luther that describes the, the missional significance of the marketplace in these terms. He says that if you're a farmer, like anybody a farmer here, by the way? Okay, excellent. We have one, two, two farmers. Congratulations, Jay. I didn't know you had a farm. Um, so we have these farmers, right? So just here, here's what Martin Luther says. The farmer has to be on good terms with the person who harvests the grain. Because if they're not on good terms with each other, then they don't do business together. So therefore, they have to look out for each other's interests. And the person who harvests has to be on good terms with the person who bags it up. And the person who bags it up has to be on good terms with the person who transports it to market, who has to be on good terms with the person who's the merchant, and the merchant has to be on good terms with the customers, right? So you get the word customers, king. Well, Jesus really is king, but in this situation... (laughs) So, but the point is that, and here's what Martin Luther says, all along that chain, people are motivated to care for their neighbor, and Martin Luther concludes this way, 
Is it possible that God developed this economic system, the system of relationships, to encourage people to fulfill the great commandment to love their neighbors themselves because they have an economic interest that they would have no other interest otherwise in engaging with those people? Now, um, if you come visit Pam and I, we have some cows. So I understand this a little bit. Um, and it's not always easy. Like the other week, uh, my neighbor got a bull and two of our female cows noticed it. And uh, one morning I woke up and what used to be a fence now was splinters. And there's two female cows doing what they do. So, um, <laughs> so I had to have these discussions with my neighbor. And uh, it's really interesting. I mean, the neighbor... He, we come over and we you know, try to corral these cows back where they're supposed to be and then we had to fix the fence and, and the neighbor who's 77, we're just kind of amazed at how these cows can plow through these like oak panels like it's butter. He just scratches his head and says, well, I'm 77 but I can remember a day. <laughs> so um, my, my point is here, when you're engaged in the market, but you get in conversations you wouldn't otherwise, with people that you wouldn't otherwise, connected to a whole supply chain and a distribution channel that you wouldn't otherwise, and it develops this network of relationships upon which the Apostle Paul realized church plants can follow. Now, I've often asked people, would you like to hear about a theologian who was a multimillionaire? And that perks their ears up. But it's also a theologian you've probably heard of. And let me introduce you to John Wesley. Wesley was a businessman who made the equivalent of four to five million dollars in his day. Did you hear that? He had this publishing business where he published this book that made today's equivalent of four to five million dollars. So Wesley affirmed what Luther said, nuanced it a bit, because he knew the dangers of riches too, and he wrote about that, that, that riches should not find a resting place in your soul. But he also knew the great potential that engaging in business could have because he was in business himself. So he didn't think the word profit was a dirty word. He thought it could be used very profitably. And here's what he described it in one of his sermons. He says, in the hands of his children, it or money, is food for the hungry, drink for the thirsty, raiment for the naked. It gives to the traveler and the stranger where to lay his head. By it we may supply the place of a husband to the widow, a father to the homeless. We may be a defense for the oppressed, a means of health to the sick, of ease to them that are in pain. It may be as eyes to the blind, as feet to the lame, yea, a lifter up from the gates of death. The great potential, good, that business can provide. And therefore he concludes in this sermon with this. It is therefore of the highest concern that all who fear God. Do you know anybody like that? You know anybody that fears God? I hope you do. When you look in the mirror, you see somebody. It's all, therefore, the highest concern, he said, that all who fear God know how to employ this valuable talent and that they may be instructed how may it answer these glorious ends in the highest degree. Wow. So Wesley affirmed the value of business, of the networking that uh, resulted as a part of that, and even encouraged it in his own life. Now, there's plenty of historical examples I can provide. Uh, the Nestorian movement, the Moravians, uh, the Wesley movement itself. I'd just like to provide a few examples from some that you may be a bit more familiar with. The circuit riders. 
Now, Dr. Tennant, in his commencement address, noted that Wesley's favorite venue for preaching was graveyards and marketplaces. This sounds interesting, doesn't it? So Wesley's thinking outside the small containers and starting thinking not just bonsai plants, but bigger potential alleys. So the uh, 18th century notes, the minutes, of when the, the Methodists would gather together, they provide an indication of the locations where these churches were planted on the frontier. And the locations include these. Taverns, cabins, stores, poorhouses, forts, barns, woodland clearings, and riverboats. On one occasion, a circuit rider preached in a gambling house. That sounds a bit sketchy, right? So a layperson said, in Jesus' time, some made the house of God a den of thieves. Now the Methodists have changed a den of thieves into a house of God. <laughs> Hallelujah. Can I get an amen on that? Yeah. <laughs> so they were thinking different containers, like, like wider containers, not limited by just these uh, little buildings that people go to once a week or twice a week, but they're thinking outside that box. So take a look. What do you see here? Just kind of absorb it a bit. Now, I borrowed this slide from Dr. Thobaven. Um, he and I do a session together at Acton University in the summer, and we use the slide, so I figured it'd be okay. Anyway, hopefully he's okay with that. But, but take a look at this. Um, it probably reminds you of, hopefully, something like this. Now, Dr. Thobaven, I'm sure, did not paint that one, okay? But take a look here and think about some of the implications. You see, God's stretching out and handing a wrench to a worker. Now, is it possible that work is a gift given to humanity to help dignify humans? Because work was given to Adam and Eve before the fall. It was made dip more difficult after the fall. But it was given to Adam and Eve before the fall as a way to dignify humans, but also as a way to fulfill their missional calling. Hmm. Paul realized that. He fulfilled part of his missional calling through that tent-making network of the guild, of the supply chain, distribution channels, etc. It develops these natural relationships upon which we can live out our missional calling. So let's give a few examples. Um, I've been to these different church plants, different areas of the world. And I only have time for two. I'm going to start off with one in Chattanooga, Tennessee. Okay, anybody been to Chattanooga? Yeah, I've got a couple brave souls. And you walk along downtown, and you'll find this uh, sign here, camp house. And you walk in, you see a cafe and a coffee shop. So there's tables there. Maybe hard to see, but um, as you're close to the front here, there's a barista and a modern coffee shop. As you go closer or further away here from us, there's a Byzantine mosaic and the uh, architecture and the lighting gets more ancient as you get closer to that and more contemporary as you get close to the barista on, on purpose. So we went there on Saturday night and they have live music. There's a cover charge, so you have to pay. And there's food you can buy, etc. Every night of the week, they have different kind of entertainment, different events. And then on Sunday morning, they push the tables aside and they line up chairs, 150 people unchurched, de-churched people that meet there in that church building. So this business was intentionally started with a view towards drawing a network of people that then plants a church. And that part of the benefit of that in the church planter's mind 
is uh, one of the difficulties in church planting is this thing called a building, right? That becomes a tail wagging the dog where church planters have to worry about a building. So in this case, the uh, business owner, the coffee shop, takes care of the building concerns. The church planter then can leverage the networks that are developed through that and plant their church. And as a result of this, uh, it's gone so well, they now have three of those in Chattanooga. And each of those church plants represent the vibe of the neighborhood that they're situated. So in this venue, it was more like a hipster kind of deal. Um, yeah, I could go there with skinny jeans and whatnot. But the other ones had the more uh, like blue collar type of feel. And each of those met the context of the neighborhood that they were planted in. Now, there's lots of examples of these kind of business, entrepreneurial type of church planting approaches. Um, there's some pizzerias. There's uh, bakery shops. There's a gym. Uh, lots of coffee shops, et cetera, that I could show you. But I'd like to show you ones a bit closer to home that maybe you recognize. Anybody recognize this place? Can I hear it? Where is it? Jay's Place. Yeah, you know what Jay stands for? I mean, it's a cool name, I know, but you know what Jay stands for? Jesus Place. Yeah. Intentionally, um, this business was started intentionally to transform the neighborhood, to have a Christian influence. There's a church plant that meets there on Sunday mornings. There's a recovery community meeting on Sunday nights. There's a church plant, a CMA church plant, uh, Shadowland, that meets there many nights during the week in the upstairs of that building. If you walk in, though, during the week, here's what you find. Um, you can get some good food, coffee. They also have, like, a food drive, clothing drive. Now, this has recently been recognized, 2017, by the Chamber of Commerce, Small Business of the Year in Jessamine County. Wow. So now the church is regaining her public voice as we're stepping outside of small containers and engaging larger ones, becoming relevant and engaging people that normally would not enter into those other buildings. So I wanted to conclude with this. We recently had a trip to the UK where we traveled uh, London, York, Sheffield, Edinburgh, uh, Dr. Winfield, uh, connect us with all these people, and everywhere we went, Everybody seemed to know him. I think between Dr. Tumblin and Dr. Winfield, they knew all of the church planning network leaders in the country there. But we had a great time, but we end up in Edinburgh, Scotland. So here we are taking this tour. And this is St. Giles Cathedral. You can't see it real clearly here, but there's a statue of John Knox. That's where John Knox preached during the Reformation period so powerfully that the nation gets transformed religiously, becomes mostly predominantly uh, Presbyterian. And that fervor builds such that in 1910, when they want to have a world gathering of missionary leaders, they decide to gather in Edinburgh because this is like home base for Christianity. Powerful, vibrant witness of Christ. So in 1910, they had this missionary gathering and they had this slogan we can reach the world in this generation. And they really thought that could occur. Now, they didn't know just down the road there's a couple of world wars and other uh, rises of secularism, et cetera. But they actually felt that that could happen in 1910. So now we fast forward about 100 years later. And as we are standing there under the shadow of St. Giles Cathedral next to the John Knox statue, the tour guide explains 
that presently only 3% of people in Edinburgh attend church. So think about what's happened in 100 years. Going from kind of the nexus, the, the center of gravity, the hope of Christianity that we can reach the world in this generation, to now, 100 years later, only 3% attend church. So it's a bit sobering. And then we start to think, well, think of the direction the U.S. is heading. And what needs to happen for the U.S. to become another Edinburgh? And basically, we concluded, really, nothing. Let's just do the same old thing we've always done. Let's just keep doing church the way we have. Think about small containers, not get creative and think outside of larger containers. If we just want to turn into a, another Edinburgh, let's just not talk about evangelism much. You know, it's a bit uncomfortable, and it gets us out of our comfort zone, and it's probably for somebody else who's more gifted, perhaps. That's all we need to do to slide into this devolution into a contemporary Edinburgh. But fortunately, at Asbury Seminary, we're not satisfied with that. We're not satisfied with these small containers. We have a vision for what God can do to bloom the church in larger venues. Now, it's going to require some innovative thinking. It's going to require some creative approaches. But our seminary has the vision from the top down to do this, such that we don't need to devolve into what Edinburgh is now, but that we can think creatively outside the box, that that trend of 48% millennials being post-Christian is not okay with us. That's not okay. But really, that leads us to some deeper questions, to think about more creative approaches. And this topic of evangelism, while we may be a bit cause some discomfort, we're willing to try practical approaches such that we can turn that tide. It can be done. And you're at the place that can happen. Almost every semester we have classes in church planting. Um, every semester we also have practical evangelism training where people can do role plays and skits. And we have some card games and other things where it takes the fear out of evangelism, puts the story back in to help people to think about bigger containers of the church. Now, I've been talking to you a lot. Let's talk to God just a second. Can you bow your head with me, please? Now, I've been speaking. God may have been speaking to you. Perhaps God's been saying to you, you know, this uh, millennial generation, I'm concerned about where they are. The spiritual condition is not okay with God, and it's not okay with me. And that may be you. Or maybe you've been thinking, yeah, I can see myself involved in some type of church plant like that, either an entrepreneurial approach or some innovative approach. Or maybe you've been thinking, you know, I'm already doing something like that. I'd like to do it a bit more intentional and perhaps a bit better where people come alongside of me. Now, if that's you, I just want you to raise your hand real quick. I'm going to pray for you. Okay? Okay? I want to pray for you right now. Lord, God, I thank you for these people that I feel your call, that are not okay with status quo, but understand your desire for this generation to once again be a large blooming tree that can flourish to reveal your glory. Lord, I ask you by your Holy Spirit to anoint and direct their thoughts, but even more, stir their heart to have steps in faith that their feet move in obedience. Lord, I pray you'd guide and direct them connect them to uh, the other resources at this school and beyond such that we can once again 
as they did in the, ninth, in the 20th century, say that we can reach the world in this generation. That perhaps what's happening at Asbury now are harbingers of the 21st century equivalent of the 18th century circuit riders. And I pray that these people who raise their hands will step into those shoes with that type of history, with that biblical foundation, and with that type of um, historical foundation. And we ask you this in Jesus' name. Amen.